0: Welcome once again to a New Mexico in Focus podcast episode. I, as usual, am your host, Kevin McDonald. I'm an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS and uh, always thrilled to bring you content from the show and lots of the other things we're working on during the week. And this episode is no different today, Monday, September 27th, last Monday of September, Uh, as we head full-fledged into autumn. And I hope you're noticing the cooling temperatures. I know I am. Love this time of year, especially in New Mexico. Color's starting to change. Again, those temperatures coming down, which we appreciate. Still would love to have some more rain, as I know you all would. Uh, And that will be a big theme in today's show. But just a terrific time of year. We've got Balloon Fiesta coming up. Uh, So many great things to enjoy in the fall here in New Mexico. And so many things to bring you on this episode of the podcast. We'll start things off, again, on the meteorological front. Uh, We've talked a lot about the drought and climate change and rising temperatures and the impacts of that. One thing we haven't spent a huge amount of time on yet is really the impacts on our agricultural industry in New Mexico. But we recently had the chance to sit down with our state secretary of agriculture. He is Jeff Witty, and environmental correspondent Laura Paskus caught up to him on Zoom. Great conversation here about how uh, farmers are weathering the drought. Uh, again, we know that there is a lot of risk in agriculture. Uh, relying on Mother Nature and that a lot of things are cyclical, but one thing we know for sure, temperatures are rising, water supplies are getting more and more scarce, and it's really putting a pinch on farmers and ranchers. So we wanted to check in with him, get an update on that, how they're innovating, how they're adapting, what our um, agricultural output is going to look like going forward as everything changes with climate change. And one thing you'll hear in here a bunch is uh, the effect on the food supply, which I think a lot of us take for granted. And so there's a lot to consider. Thrilled with Secretary Whitty, uh giving us some time to talk about these things. Here now, correspondent Laura Paskus.
1: Secretary Whitty, thank you so much for joining me on New Mexico in Focus today.
2: Glad to be here, Laura. Thank you.
1: Drought is widespread. We also have communities where we've seen extreme precipitation events this summer. Can you give us a little overview of how the farming and ranching community is doing in New Mexico this summer?
2: You know, it's, this has been a, a challenging, it's been an interesting year. Uh, we started out very, very dry. Uh, in our farming communities, uh, most of them, like here in the southern end of the state, we were only allocated just a few inches of uh, surface irrigation, and so a lot of the farmers had to rely on on groundwater, a lot of pumping. If you drive around the southern part of Doniana County and and uh, northern part of Donana County and even Sierra County, you're going to see a lot of fallowed land, land that just didn't have access to water this year, and and that's really, uh, you know, that's attributable to the drought. Uh, the ranch land across the state, uh, it started out very, very dry. Um, you know, as, as we went into June, it was really tough. And then all of a sudden, these rains came. And now, for the most part across the state, you see some good grass uh, that's grown. It's, it's amazing how the New Mexico landscape takes care of itself when, when we get a little rain. And it doesn't take a lot, just a little, but we've had some, we've been blessed with some good rains. The northwest corner of the state still dry and we need, to, we need to get some more rain up there. Our farmers and ranchers are very resilient. Um, they, they planned for this year after year, although it was really getting tough. A lot of the ranchers that sold uh, off a lot of their herds early on uh, because they didn't have any choice. Uh, you don't have grass. You've got to buy hay. It's not economically viable. So, we started off rough. It's looking a little better right now.
1: So I'm curious, when farmers have to fallow fields, um, when you miss a cutting or a, um, a crop harvest, how does that affect not just the individual farmer, but the economy as a whole, and then also maybe consumers?
2: So you see, and, and I'll talk a little bit about down in, in southern New Mexico where we had the, the fallowed land. A lot of that used to be onions or lettuce or, or chili, uh, for instance, um, you're going to see less of that product uh, on the table. New Mexico is number one in production of chili. New Mexico is number one in production of summer onions. We we have we're like a salad bowl for a few months uh, in this state. And so you know what that means is that we're having to bring it in from other places. You hope that Texas or California has a, has a good production cycle, um, and and that we have that the consumer will have that available. But you're going to see some higher prices for, for those commodities. Uh, you may see some increased imports of, of those items. Uh, people prefer the buy local. We all prefer the New Mexico products, especially New Mexico chili and onions and and uh, all the good things that we grow, but it, it makes it tough when you can't water it.
1: I'm curious because we're also watching what's happening in the Colorado River Basin this year and the shortages. How does that either affect New Mexico markets OR MAYBE PREVIEW WHAT COULD BE TO COME in HERE IN THE NEXT FEW YEARS.
2: SO, so it's, IT'S KIND OF INTERESTING. I've, I'VE HAD A LOT OF CONVERSATIONS WITH the, MY COUNTERPART IN CALIFORNIA, SECRETARY, KAREN ROSS. And, AND EVEN HERE, OUR FARMERS, THEY'VE LEARNED HOW TO ADAPT TO THE LESS WATER. AND THEY, they INCREASE THEIR uh, per PRODUCTION PER ACRE ON FEWER ACRES to, TO OFFSET SOME OF THAT, BUT IT DOESN'T OFFSET ALL OF IT. NEW MEXICO, WE'RE KIND OF IN A in a WINDOW BETWEEN, A LOT OF TIMES, BETWEEN TEXAS AND CALIFORNIA HARVEST CYCLES. IF CALIFORNIA IS NOT HARVESTING, OUR FARMERS DO REALLY WELL PRICE-WISE. Uh, SAME THING WITH TEXAS. THE the PROBLEM WITH THE COLORADO BASIN AND, and LESS WATER IS THAT YOU'RE GOING TO SEE LESS ACRES in, in, California and California is, you know, by far the number one producer of agricultural commodities. So it's going to have a ripple effect throughout the economy. Their farmers are going to have to really get good with efficiencies and, and irrigation schedules and, and even maybe looking at changing some of their cropping patterns. When you have uh, field crops, say like their vegetable crops and, and things like that, you can change that. When you have tree crops, like what we have in Southern New Mexico, uh, pecans, they have almonds. uh, You can't change those. And so you have to do all you can to protect those crops.
1: So we know this year had its challenges, but we also know that forecasts show that um, droughts will get more severe, temperatures keep rising, um, more longer heat waves, these extreme precipitation events. How are New Mexico's farmers going to adapt to these future conditions which essentially are are going to become permanent conditions
2: I think I think you know New Mexico has always been a dry state and what we're seeing in the last few years you're seeing these these weather patterns shift a little bit and we go through a cycle and and I think we've been going through the cycle for a, a very long time our farmers are resilient but the one thing that farmers have that that is really helpful is they have a really good University system. New Mexico State University's got a, a great College of Agriculture. They do good research. They do good extension programs. Those are the things that are going to help transition the farms to that next whatever the next phase is, dealing with the drought, drought-resistant crop development, better irrigation cycles. Um, even on the ranchland, you're seeing uh, the ranchers make some shifts in in their calving cycles and and others to to really address the marketplace and address the the drought system situation technology innovation you're going to see a transformation in agriculture in the future like what we've never seen before and it's because we have to but we also have the ability to and i think that's what is gives me the optimism for the future the other thing is we're we're dealing with the, the next generation of agriculture is coming up in new mexico our average age is 60 5 years in the farming and ranching community. Those kids, the the kids that are coming up, and I call them kids out of respect, but they're young, they're energetic, and they're really aggressive. They're looking at all the new technologies. I see nothing but good things coming.
1: So people often ask me um, about crop changes and things like that. And I'm curious, you know, sometimes we see, like we saw in, in southern New Mexico, this sort of shift away from things like alfalfa toward orchards. And, and that came with its own set of complications. And now people like to talk about hemp or cannabis being like the next yes. big crop. Like, what are some of the changes that you see and what are some of the, the cautions maybe we should be considering as we think about changing crop patterns?
2: Yeah, you bet. So, so there's, um, you, you've seen, you, you noted the, the shift from like vegetable crops to, to tree crops. That was really due to labor. Uh, labor was the, the driving force to to move to that kind of crop. Now we've got with the legalization of hemp across the nation, uh, we had several farmers, many farmers, move into the hemp uh, growing over the last few years. Well, what they found was that hemp is a complicated crop. It's it's not a it's a crop that's labor intensive. There's pest issues. It's all the same agronomic issues that you've got with any other uh, other crop. And as a nation, we really we really produced, and we produced a lot, and we basically outproduced the market. There's going to be a lot of dynamic shifts in the, in the hemp uh, area uh, because of, you know, once FDA and, and other agencies at the federal level makes more approvals for, for food products or, or uh, medical uses and things like that, you're going to see a dynamic shift there. NOW, IN NEW MEXICO, WE'VE GOT CANNABIS. I EXPECT THAT THERE WILL BE A LOT OF EXCITEMENT AND ANTICIPATION of, OF CANNABIS AND PEOPLE GROWING IT. WHAT I SEE, THOUGH, in, IN THAT IS IT'S GOING TO BE AN INDOOR CROP. THERE'S NOT GOING TO BE, AT LEAST INITIALLY, THERE WON'T BE A LOT OF OUTDOOR GROWTH OF CANNABIS. IT'S, it's, um, it's A CROP THAT'S GOT TO BE BASICALLY PROTECTED AND in, in, uh, it's, IT'S NOT DIFFICULT TO GROW. IT'S JUST YOU WANT TO KEEP YOUR INSECTS uh, issues down, you want to keep all the other outside influences down. So you're going to see, I think, a resurgence in greenhouse uh, across the state of New Mexico. Um, and then you're going to start looking at other developing markets, uh, alternate uses for things. Everybody thinks of the traditional uses of cannabis. I think you're going to see many more uses out there for both hemp and cannabis in the future.
1: So whenever we're in a phase where we're thinking a lot about drought and water scarcity and water challenges, we always look to see how much water agriculture uses in New Mexico, which is like, you know, more than 80 percent of the water in the state goes toward agriculture. And yet we have all these challenges like hunger and food insecurity. (laughs) How can we make sure that we're putting our water resources to the highest and best use for New Mexicans?
2: Sure. Well, you know, I like to tell people yes, uh, agriculture uses a lot of water to produce food. If you like to eat, you better be appreciative of that. Um, I often ask when I'm speaking at rotaries or, or service clubs what part of your plate do you not want anymore? Uh, do you not want the chili? Do you not want the lettuce? Do you not want this or that? And people don't realize that. I tell them, farmers and ranchers don't use any water. The consumers use all the water when they consume the food. And that shifts that discussion a little bit. The highest and best use can't be uh, determined based off of the value, uh, the monetary value.
3: Every,
2: everything out there is in essence more valuable than water because in America we have the cheapest and most abundant food supply in the world. And you know, I've been told by folks in other countries you tell us, you connect us with your farmers and we will buy 100% of what you guys grow in America because we'll pay for it and the people in the United States won't. Um, we don't want to go there. It's it's a sense of pride that we have that uh, abundant food supply. But I think when we get down to water use, it's the technologies and the, and the better practices that we're evolving to, with is, is what's going to change the day and, and really make it work. You've got these universities are doing a lot of good research. You're, we're looking at other alternative sources of water uh, across the state. You know, some there's a research program looking at produced water. Uh, there's another program looking at brackish water. So there's gonna be opportunities in the future to use some of the water that's not been able to be used today. Highest and best use, that's for everybody to determine. But for me, it's chili, beef, cheese, milk, <laughs> and things like that. Onions and lettuce. Uh, we've got to feed those who need food.
1: So I'm curious, you come from an agricultural family, and if I have it right, you're, at least one of your children is also um, in the, in the field as well. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, is it realistic to think that we're going to be able to continue farming and ranching? IN NEW MEXICO THE WAY WE ALWAYS HAVE. WHAT CHOICES DO WE NEED TO MAKE um, ON OUR FARMS AND RANCHES AND and AS CONSUMERS AS WELL?
2: I I THINK uh, ABSOLUTELY WE'LL BE ABLE TO CONTINUE FARMING AND RANCHING IN THE STATE OF NEW MEXICO. WE'VE GOT, WE'VE JUST GOT TOO MUCH LAND. THAT IS THE BEST USE OF THAT LAND. WILL WE BE DOING IT LIKE WE DID IN THE PAST? YOU KNOW, THE GREATEST THING THAT WE HAVE IN THE STATE OF NEW MEXICO IS WE HAVE A LOT OF GOOD CUSTOMS AND CULTURE and WE RESPECT THE CULTURES OF THE PAST, BUT YOU LOOK AT EVERY PRODUCER THAT'S OUT THERE TODAY, AND NONE OF THEM ARE DOING IT LIKE THEIR GRANDFATHERS DID OR THEIR GREAT-GRANDFATHERS DID. EVERYBODY ADDS THEIR OWN FLAVOR TO THEIR CULTURE. AND I THINK there's, there's, THAT'S GOING TO CONTINUE IN THE FUTURE. Uh, YOU'RE GOING TO SEE AN ADAPTATION of, OF TECHNOLOGIES THAT WE DIDN'T EVEN THINK ABOUT YESTERDAY IN TOMORROW'S AGRICULTURE. You're going to see the uses of water uh, change and, and the dynamics of and the opportunities for, and I'm not even sure what, the, what it's going to be because some of this stuff hasn't even been invented yet. And I think those are the opportunities of the future. Uh, and, the, and the next generation and the generation after that will adapt, they'll, they'll produce that food. I think for our consumers, COVID showed us one thing. We love local food and it was available and and the challenge that we had is connecting the producers to the consumers and we've got to all do a better job of that the consumers needed to look look for those opportunities to to buy the local and and to support their farmers and ranchers the thing that as you're driving around the state and, and I like to to tell this to folks look at the landscape and look at what's being, whether you're in the middle of Albuquerque, Corrales, uh, Las Cruces, or, or somewhere between Vaughn and Roswell, take a look at your surroundings and then start to count how many things associated with food production, agriculture that you're seeing. And it's amazing what you see out there, whether it's a school cafeteria that's serving the food, the restaurant, or it's the two-acre winery in Corrales that all of a sudden you realize. That provided a great atmosphere, but it also provides a little uh, entertainment too.
1: (laughs) Secretary Whitty, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: Glad to be here. And we had more from that interview that we just did not have time for on the broadcast this week, but luckily we can bring it to you here in this extra segment with Agricultural Secretary Jeff Witte. There's a lot that that, uh, Laura is going to get into with him, again, about the food supply, about how farmers and ranchers are finding ways to innovate uh, in the face of climate change, the resources in the state from the great programs at NMSU to research projects to uh, projects searching new sources of water, Uh, And again, one big topic that we uh, had to talk to Secretary Whitty about was the oncoming onslaught of the cannabis industry, which there's a lot of excitement and buzz about, but that is uh, going to put some more strain on the agricultural industry in New Mexico. So, I wanted to get his thoughts on that. We've had hemp for a little while now, and now we've got a lot of folks jumping into the cannabis industry. So, Lots to dive into here with our extra here with Agriculture Secretary, Jeff Witte. Here again, correspondent, Laura Paskus.
1: We know this year had its challenges, but we also know that forecasts show that um, droughts will get more severe, temperatures keep rising, um, more, longer heat waves, these extreme precipitation events. How are New Mexico's farmers going to adapt to these future conditions, which essentially are are going to become permanent conditions,
4: I think
2: I think you know New Mexico has always been a dry state, and what we're seeing in the last few years, you're seeing these these weather patterns shift a little bit, and we go through a cycle, and and I think we've been going through the cycle for a, a very long time. Our farmers are resilient, but the one thing that farmers have that that is really helpful is they have a really good. University system. New Mexico State University's got a, a great College of Agriculture. They do good research. They do good extension programs. Those are the things that are going to help transition the farms to that next whatever the next phase is, dealing with the drought drought resistant crop development, better irrigation cycles. Um, even on the ranch land, you're seeing uh, the ranchers make some shifts in in their calving cycles and and others to to. REALLY ADDRESS THE MARKETPLACE AND ADDRESS THE the DROUGHT SITUATION. TECHNOLOGY, INNOVATION, YOU'RE GOING TO SEE A TRANSFORMATION IN AGRICULTURE IN THE FUTURE LIKE WHAT WE'VE NEVER SEEN BEFORE. AND IT'S BECAUSE WE HAVE TO, BUT WE ALSO HAVE THE ABILITY TO. AND I THINK THAT'S what is GIVES ME THE OPTIMISM FOR THE FUTURE. THE OTHER THING IS WE'RE, we're DEALING WITH the, THE NEXT GENERATION OF AGRICULTURAL IS COMING UP. IN NEW MEXICO, OUR AVERAGE AGE IS 60 Point five years in the farming and ranching community. Those kids, the the kids that are coming up, and I call them kids out of respect, but they're young, they're energetic, and they're really aggressive. They're looking at all the new technologies. I see nothing but good things coming.
1: So people often ask me um, about crop changes and things like that, and I'm curious, you know, sometimes we see, like we saw in in southern New Mexico, this sort of shift away from things like alfalfa toward orchards, and and that came with its own set of complications, and now people like to talk about hemp or cannabis being, like, the next big crop. Like, what are some of the changes that you see, and what are some of the, the cautions maybe we should be considering as we think? ABOUT CHANGING CROP PATTERNS.
2: YEAH, YOU BET. SO so THERE'S, um, you, YOU'VE SEEN, YOU, you NOTED the, THE SHIFT FROM, LIKE, VEGETABLE CROPS to, TO TREE CROPS. THAT WAS REALLY DUE TO LABOR. Uh, LABOR WAS a, THE DRIVING FORCE to, TO MOVE TO THAT KIND OF CROP. NOW WE'VE GOT, WITH THE LEGALIZATION OF HEMP ACROSS THE NATION, uh, WE HAD SEVERAL FARMERS, MANY FARMERS, MOVE INTO THE HEMP uh, GROWING OVER THE LAST FEW YEARS. Well what they found was that hemp is a complicated crop it's it's not a it's a crop that's labor intensive there's pest issues it's all the same agronomic issues that you've got with any other uh, other crop and as a nation we really we really produced and we produced a lot and we basically outproduced the market there's going to be a lot of dynamic shifts in the in the hemp uh, area uh, because of you know once fda and and other agencies at the federal level makes more approvals for for, food products or, or uh, medical uses and things like that. You're going to see a dynamic shift there. Now in New Mexico, we've got cannabis. I expect that there will be a lot of excitement and anticipation of, of cannabis and people growing it. What I see, though, in, in that is it's going to be an indoor crop. There's not going to be, at least initially, there won't be a lot of outdoor growth of cannabis. It's it's um, IT'S A CROP THAT'S GOT TO BE BASICALLY PROTECTED, AND in, in, uh, it's, IT'S NOT DIFFICULT TO GROW, IT'S JUST YOU WANT TO KEEP YOUR INSECT uh, ISSUES DOWN, YOU WANT TO KEEP ALL THE OTHER OUTSIDE INFLUENCES DOWN. SO YOU'RE GOING TO SEE, I THINK, A RESURGENCE IN GREENHOUSE uh, ACROSS THE STATE OF NEW MEXICO, um, AND THEN YOU'RE GOING TO START LOOKING AT OTHER DEVELOPING MARKETS, uh, ALTERNATE USES FOR THINGS. EVERYBODY THINKS OF THE TRADITIONAL USES OF CANNABIS. I think you're going to see many more uses out there for both hemp and cannabis in the future.
1: So whenever we're in a phase where we're thinking a lot about drought and water scarcity and water challenges, we always look to see how much water agriculture uses in New Mexico, which is like, you know, more than 80% of the water in the state goes toward agriculture. And yet we have all these challenges like hunger and food insecurity. (laughs) HOW CAN WE MAKE SURE THAT WE'RE PUTTING OUR WATER RESOURCES TO THE HIGHEST AND BEST USE FOR NEW MEXICANS?
2: SURE. WELL, YOU KNOW, I LIKE TO TELL PEOPLE, YES, uh, AGRICULTURE USES A LOT OF WATER TO PRODUCE FOOD. IF YOU LIKE TO EAT, YOU BETTER BE APPRECIATIVE OF THAT. Um, I OFTEN ASK WHEN I'M SPEAKING AT ROTARIES or, OR SERVICE CLUBS, WHAT PART OF YOUR PLATE DO YOU NOT WANT ANYMORE? Uh, Do you not want the chili? Do you not want the lettuce? Do you not want this or that? And people don't realize that. I I tell them, farmers and ranchers don't use any water. the consumers use all the water when they consume the food? And that shifts that discussion a little bit. The highest and best use can't be uh, determined based off of the value, uh, the monetary value. Everything out there is, in essence, more valuable than water, because in America we have the cheapest and most abundant food supply in the world. And you know I've been told by folks in other countries, you tell us, you connect us with your farmers and we will buy 100% of what you guys grow in America because we'll pay for it and the people in the United States won't. Um, we don't want to go there. It's, it's a sense of pride that we have that uh, abundant food supply. But I think when we get down to water use. It's the technologies and the, and the better practices that we're evolving to, with is, is what's gonna change the day and, and really make it work. You've got these universities are doing a lot of good research. You're, we're looking at other alternative sources of water uh, across the state. You know, some, there's a research program looking at produced water. Uh, there's another program looking at brackish water. So there's gonna be opportunities in the future to use some of the water that's not been able to be used today. Highest and best use, that's for everybody to determine. But for me, it's chili, beef, cheese, milk, (laughs) and things like that. Onions and lettuce. Uh, We've got to feed those who need food.
0: We encourage, if you haven't already, to check out our last episode with our most recent line opinion panel conversations where we tackled the local impacts of Texas abortion ban bill here in New Mexico. We're part of a lawsuit now challenging that law. We've also known that uh, abortion clinics here in New Mexico have seen an influx of people coming in from Texas, so we talked about that. We also talked about the redistricting efforts, which we'll have more on here in a bit, but we also talked to our group. And a reminder, our line panel was Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group, one of our regulars, as well as Serge Martinez from the UNM Law School. And we had political psychologist and author of the book, Your Voice, Your Vote, Martha Burke, the one and only. We want to bring you now a segment on uh, Balloon Fiesta, which is just days away now, the premier event of the fall in New Mexico. Been a lot of talk about what their procedures would be as we're still dealing with the Delta variant here in New Mexico. Uh, We've known for a while now that uh, the plan was to not have a vaccine mandate to require masks indoors and outdoors with large crowds and to encourage social distancing and all of the CDC guidelines. But there was a bit of chatter out there that, in fact, they may change their minds about a vaccine requirement. And we found out last week that that was not the case. There will not be a vaccine requirement or proof of a negative test. And uh, that is at the disappointment of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, spokesman for her office, saying that they had hoped that there would be that in place, uh, especially because of the high profile nature of this event. So, one talk to the line panel is that fair to put all that on Balloon Fiesta? What impact will it have on Fiesta? No doubt, whichever choice they made, some people were going to make the choice to go or not go based on the decision they made. And uh, luckily, Tom Garrity is part of the group. He uh, contracts, works with Balloon Fiesta. So he's got some insight here. Uh, Again, those are uh, uh, not necessarily his personal opinion, but what he knows about the process behind the scene and then a really vibrant conversation here about some of the lingering tangential impacts of that decision. So here now, host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel.
5: With just a few weeks to go before one of the state's most high profile events, we now know the International Balloon Fiesta will not have a vaccine requirement. The announcement came earlier this week after organizers indicated they were still considering this extra public health precaution. TOM, THE Garrity GROUP HAS, OF COURSE, WORKED WITH THE BALLOON FIESTA FOR YEARS NOW. Uh, WHAT WAS THE decision, DECIDING FACTOR IN THIS DECISION TO FORGO A VACCINE OR A NEGATIVE TEST REQUIREMENT FOR ENTRY?
6: YOU KNOW, IT WAS A DECISION THAT THE BOARD OF DIRECTORS MADE ACTUALLY IN AUGUST AND THE ANNOUNCEMENT WAS uh, MADE IN EARLY SEPTEMBER. Um, IT RECENTLY you know, GOT SOME TRACTION. Uh, when uh, a government entity uh, said that it's still on the table when in actuality, the balloon fiesta, which is a private 501 C three organization had already made that decision early on. So, you know, what, what we saw was, was, uh, you know, just a reinforcement of the, you know, uh, masks are mandated in indoor spaces and in crowded outdoor spaces, Mm -hmm. which aligns both
5: with the uh, state's public health order as well as CDC guidelines. Mm -hmm. Got to stay with you, Tom, on this one. Uh, who who monitors these kind of things? You know, if we're going to have to be outdoors, some parts of balloon field are shoulder to shoulder. We're going to have masks, but who taps who on the shoulder and says, "You got to have a mask on out there"? You know, it's uh, we're relying on our guests to uh, you know to be that self-enforcer. You know,
6: everybody mm-hmm. has a certain level of comfort. The launch field itself is eighty-three acres. Um, WE'RE gonna shapes, GOING TO HAVE SPECIAL SHAPES OR BALLOON FIESTA IS GOING TO HAVE SPECIAL SHAPES SPREAD THROUGHOUT BECAUSE WE KNOW THAT THAT'S AN AREA WHERE PEOPLE TEND TO CONGREGATE.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, YOU KNOW, SO THERE'S a, THERE ARE A LOT OF DIFFERENT THINGS THAT BALLOON FIESTA HAS DONE TO MAKE IT, YOU KNOW, A LOT MORE, uh, YOU KNOW, VISITOR-FRIENDLY FROM THE PERSPECTIVE OF INCREASED HAND SANITIZERS, Uh, CASHLESS uh, SYSTEMS AS WELL BEING AVAILABLE uh, AND EVEN MOVING ALL OF OUR INDOOR SEATING uh, FOR EATING Mm -hmm. OUTDOORS. Ah. SO THERE'S A LOT OF DIFFERENT THINGS THAT FIESTA HAS DONE BEHIND THE SCENES AND THEY'VE BEEN DOING IT AND WORKING ON THIS FOR THE LAST 18 MONTHS, Mm -hmm. Uh, YOU KNOW, EVER SINCE MARCH OF 2020. Uh, AND, YOU KNOW, JUST AS A a VERY QUICK SIDE NOTE, YOU KNOW, WHEN THE RESTRICTIONS WERE THE STRONGEST FOR BALLOON FIESTA, BALLOON FIESTA WAS LOOKING AT A NUMBER OF DIFFERENT WAYS TO ADDRESS THIS PARTICULAR ISSUE, Mm -hmm. CAME UP WITH A NUMBER OF DIFFERENT CONTINGENCY PLANS, AND EVEN WHEN THE RESTRICTIONS FROM THE STATE WERE THE STRONGEST, uh, BALLOON FIESTA DEVISED PLANS AND APPROACHES WHERE THEY COULD STILL HAVE THE EVENT um, UNDER THOSE CURRENT HEALTH RESTRICTIONS. SO THERE'S BEEN A LOT OF THOUGHTFUL PROCESS THAT'S GONE INTO, uh, or, uh,
5: YOU KNOW, HOW THESE uh, POLICIES AND APPROACHES HAVE BEEN DEVELOPED. Mm-hmm. SERGE, um, A SPOKESPERSON FOR THE GOVERNOR TOLD KOB THEY WERE DISAPPOINTED WITH THE LACK OF A VACCINE REQUIREMENT. SO MY QUESTION TO YOU is: IS, AS TOM MENTIONED, IS FOLLOWING CDC GUIDELINES, WHICH FIESTA IS DOING, NOT ENOUGH? OR DO ORGANIZERS HAVE A RESPONSIBILITY TO HOLD A HIGHER STANDARD? Or do follow the governor's wishes? What what's the best route here?
4: I don't think there's any obligation to follow the governor's wishes, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think that THEY, you know this this clearly reflects a decision that's based not just on public health, right? The this is saying who do we want to have coming to the to the balloon Fiesta? Who do we who do we not care about them staying away? People who are concerned about this. ARE GOING TO STAY AWAY, AND PEOPLE WHO ARE LESS CONCERNED ARE GOING TO BE COMING. Mm-hmm. AND, YOU KNOW, IT'S NOT ONLY THAT BIG 83-ACRE FIELD THAT uh, TOM WAS TALKING ABOUT. THERE'S BUSES TO GET YOU THERE. THERE'S right. LINES WAITING FOR THE BUSES. THERE'S, YOU KNOW, IT'S GOING TO BE NOT POSSIBLE TO SAY AT ALL TIMES, OH, WE'RE NOT SPENDING TOO MUCH TIME CLOSE TO EACH OTHER. AND THE VACCINES, I REALIZE, ARE NOT PERFECT, THAT, YOU KNOW, the, AND ALL OF THE CAVEATS, BUT IT DOES CLEARLY REFLECT A CHOICE that um this is you know Mm -hmm. we're gonna try to maximize the number of people who come right and Mm -hmm. you know looking at what happened with the the state fair all the criticism and the controversy around the vaccine requirement and the -hmm. organizers say it was a huge success and they never had any trouble with the vaccine so i'll have to you know Mm -hmm. i'll take them at their word for now but i i can understand there's lots of pressures here but i do think that IT'S NOT 100% CONSISTENT WITH WHAT I WOULD THINK WOULD BE THE BEST PRACTICES FOR PUBLIC HEALTH. Mm-hmm. AND THAT'S A CHOICE THAT WAS MADE.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. MARTHA, I GOT I TO RUN BACK TO um, THE SPOKESPERSON FOR THE GOVERNOR'S OFFICE WEIGHING IN ON THIS. WAS A LINE CROSSED HERE? I MEAN, TOM MENTIONED THAT THIS IS A PRIVATE ENTITY. IS THE GOVERNOR'S OFFICE, SHOULD THEY HAVE SAID ANYTHING ABOUT THIS?
8: WELL, I THINK THEY SHOULD HAVE, YES. Mm-hmm. I. Very disappointed that, you know, if the state fair can do it and successfully so by and large, why well, can't their numbers we... were down at the state fair? You well, know, they was, did go yeah. down. Went down for a reason because mm-hmm. people who are not vaccinated are depending on the rest of us to keep them safe, which is uh, pretty stupid. Uh, in my view, but in terms of who comes to the balloon fest, of course it's international. Right. But we looked at the numbers for our bordering states, who will send a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. We're 70 percent vaccinated. Texas is at 50 percent barely. Mm-hmm. Colorado is a little better, but still below 60. Oklahoma, our other border state, is way down at 46 percent, and Arizona is at 50 percent. So we're going to have a lot of folks. Coming into the state just from our border, uh, that are not vaccinated, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's a, a note of caution. You say that fair numbers were down. Balloonfest numbers might be down for the opposite reason mm-hmm. because vaccines are not required. So we'll just have to wait and see.
5: Uh, Martha, I got to ask: Is this decision going to pave the way for other events to now forego a vaccine requirement? Or are there? ANY TENDENTIAL IMPACTS FROM THIS DECISION, DO YOU THINK?
8: I THINK THERE PROBABLY WILL BE. IT DEPENDS Mm -hmm. ON HOW OUR NUMBERS LOOK. AND THEY'RE LOOKING VERY GOOD RIGHT NOW. Mm -hmm. BUT I'M WORRIED THAT WE'LL HAVE A FALSE SENSE OF SECURITY. Mm MORE venues WILL OPEN UP AND SAY, WELL, WE'RE ON THE DOWNSIDE NOW. WE we DID THAT BEFORE AND LOOK WHAT HAPPENED. GOOD POINT. WAY BACK UP.
5: THAT'S A FAIR POINT. TOM, I GOT TO ASK YOU, ANECDOTALLY, DID YOU GET FEEDBACK FROM THE COMMUNITY THAT WHICHEVER WAY YOU WENT WITH A VACCINE REQUIREMENT, SOME PEOPLE WOULD JUST NOT ATTEND? YOU KNOW, WHAT WAS PART OF THAT DECISION PROCESS?
6: YEAH, you know, WE DEFINITELY, TO ANSWER YOUR QUESTION, WE HAVE RECEIVED A LOT OF FEEDBACK FROM BOTH SIDES, mm-hmm. uh, YOU KNOW, FOLKS WHO THINK THAT uh, IT'S NOT ENOUGH AND OTHERS WHO THINK IT'S TOO MUCH. Uh, SO, YOU KNOW, THERE'S DEFINITELY, PEOPLE ARE NOT uh, SHY ON THIS PARTICULAR TOPIC. Mm-hmm. Uh, WITH RESPECT TO, YOU KNOW, OTHER EVENTS THAT ARE GOING TO BE, THAT HAVE ALREADY BEEN TAKING PLACE, uh, I THINK AND I HOPE THAT WHAT PEOPLE WILL SEE AT BALLOON FIESTA IS uh, A BIT MORE STEPPED UP THAN WHAT WE'RE SEEING AT VARIOUS CONCERT VENUES mm-hmm. uh, THAT ARE BEING HELD THROUGHOUT THE, YOU KNOW, CONCERTS THAT ARE HELD IN THE ALBUQUERQUE area, um, different football stadiums, uh, which are also outdoor events. So you know, I, I think that uh, you know, when it comes to you know how Balloon Fiesta is approaching it, I think that they're doing the best and making the best possible decisions of you know for the event, but more importantly for their guests because. Uh, you know, for the guests and pilots, you know, Balloon Fiesta has a vested interest to make sure those who come in
5: 2021 return in
6: 2022 for the 50th.
5: Mm-hmm. Just a quick note here: APD, as I'm reading it in the journal, has outlined a security plan for the grounds. They'll have uniformed folks, PLAIN CLOTHED, and horseback officers patrolling. That's kind of interesting. Um, SERGE, the question about is about ballooning, not Balloon Fiesta, but I have to mention the developments this week in the June balloon crash that killed the Montoya and the Martinez families. A TOXICOLOGY REPORT SHOWS THAT THE PILOT, NICK MOLESKY, HAD COCAINE AND MARIJUANA IN HIS SYSTEM. WE'VE ALL SEEN BALLOONS IN THE SKY SINCE THEN, BUT DOES THIS NEWS MEAN ANYTHING ABOUT THE BALLOONING CULTURE?
4: (laughs) I AM NOT A BALLOONIST, I DON'T KNOW MUCH ABOUT THE BALLOONING uh, CULTURE AND WHETHER GETTING HIGH IS FIGURATIVELY PART OF THAT AS WELL AS LITERALLY. Um, I didn't even see that I coming. Mean, <laughs> I that I, I just that's how good I am. It just came to me. But um, it, uh, you know, it's it's obviously troubling operating any sort of vehicle, and I think it's easy to think, oh, balloons, you know, maybe aren't right. quite quite as much a concern. But I, I guess my my
5: question is about doubt. Issue. You know what I mean? You want to
4: feel safe
5: when you're going up in the air with somebody. And again, this is I, one person. I'm not saying this is the entire. When I say balloon culture, don't get me mm-hmm. wrong here. Uh, but again, on that angle of, of doubt—what's
4: uh, the impact
5: here? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean it's the same. I think level that I would apply to just about any other activity. I put my life in other people's hands every day when I, mm-hmm. you know, drive drive to work or take a bus or fly a plane or whatnot, and I am trusting in my own ability to sort of hopefully suss out those things and also to be, you yeah. know, look out for myself. I'm. It's. It, i was I'm not a huge fan of being in a little basket suspended above the ground, even theoretically, so I might not be the right person to ask, but mm-hmm. it hasn't made me more excited to to do it. But mm-hmm. I know a lot of people still love it, and it's not going to deter them. I Let me ask t- Let me ask Tom
5: something real quick on this as well. Scott Appleman, I know you know him from Rainbow Riders, had a couple of interesting points in the journal uh, this week about this. He suspected the weather was too good for this kind of crash. and second, That talk of more flight and pilot regulations after a Texas crash five years ago, that basically came to nothing. Is it time to revisit that kind of thing now?
6: Well, you know, I think what we all need to do is just kind of wait and see what the uh, NTSB findings are as a result of the balloon accident in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I know that there are a lot of uh, you know restrictions that Balloon Fiesta takes. Uh, AS FAR AS IT IS AN INVITATIONAL EVENT, uh, PILOTS ARE, uh, HAVE TO GO THROUGH A NUMBER OF DIFFERENT REVIEWS IN ORDER TO BE CONSIDERED TO FLY FOR BALLOON FIESTA. Mm -hmm. Uh, AND SO, YOU KNOW, THERE'S, uh, YOU KNOW, ARE THERE THINGS THAT COULD BE IMPROVED? Um, IN ANY PROCESS? ABSOLUTELY. Uh, it DOES IT MEAN THAT THERE'S A NEED FOR ADDITIONAL REGULATION? Uh, you know, THAT'S FOR THE LAWMAKERS. I KNOW THAT BALLOONISTS, uh, YOU KNOW, uh, SHOULD NOT
5: BE PAINTED BY THE BRUSH THAT IS BEING PAINTED WITH THIS PARTICULAR SITUATION. GOOD POINT THERE TO FINISH. LET US KNOW WHAT YOU THINK ABOUT BALLOON FIESTA'S DECISION TO NOT REQUIRE PROOF OF VACCINATION AT THIS YEAR'S EVENT. YOU CAN DO THAT ON ANY OF OUR SOCIAL MEDIA CHANNELS. THAT WOULD BE FACEBOOK, TWITTER, YOUTUBE, AND INSTAGRAM.
0: All right, we've been talking a lot about redistricting, and that's because it's important. It's only once a decade where these political boundaries get redrawn after the U.S. census, and that drives elections for the next decade. New Mexico's got a pretty spotty history in terms of how this process is done, and oftentimes it has to be decided in the courts because of the political nature of the process. Hopefully that changes this year. We now have a new law that created the Redistricting Committee, Citizen Redistricting Committee, uh, which is gathering input and information. And they recently released their proposed maps uh, before they go back out on the road to hear what folks have to say about those proposed maps and make a final decision list of recommendations for the lawmakers in the roundhouse to decide on. And we wanted to catch up with chairman of that redistricting committee, former Supreme Court Justice Edward Chavez. And we also grabbed Brian Sandroff of Research and Polling, who's helping to pull together those map proposals and crunch all those numbers and work on all those demographics for the redistricting committee. Also the community liaison, she's Lily Vitella White, and she joined Jean Grant on a recent Facebook Live to talk about where they are on the process, what happens next, what they're hearing, how it's all working. And again, you can get a lot more information from that on our website at newmexicopbs.org. Just search under community. And then the redistricting page, you can watch live streams of past public hearings. We'll be live streaming as many of the next round of public hearings as we can as well. So great thing to get yourself caught up on. And here's a nice little primer for you. Uh, Here's host, Gene Grant.
5: Thank you very much, Kevin McDonald. Hey, friends, good to see you. It's Wednesday. Time for another Facebook Live. We're going to take on redistricting again. We had the uh, great honor to talk to the Honorable Edward Chavez last time around and with also with Lily Irwin Vitella. But we're adding this time Brian Sanderoff to the mix. We're going to talk about where things stand now on the map making, so to speak, for the new districts of not just congressional stuff, but we've got a lot of other, uh, a few other seats out there as well um we want to thank you for joining this even if you're seeing this after the live broadcast because these folks are going to be very very busy out there over the next month or so with some road showing we're going to talk about that a little in a little bit as well there's a lot of opportunity left for you as the viewer or any citizen here in new mexico to get in on this that's the beauty of what we've got going on here and it's been interesting to track so far so i want to welcome back honorable edward chavez um Judge Chavez, thank you very much for, for an interesting, just four to five weeks later, a lot has happened since the last time we talked to you about this. No. Very, very interesting. But in the interest of, of uh, keeping folks up to date, could I ask you to just back up just a quick step? What was the reason behind the creation of the CRC? What is it? And what is the goal for you folks uh, at the end of the day?
9: All right. Every 10 years, the United States Census Bureau gives us a snapshot of our population on what they call Census Day, April 1, 2020, this go round, mm-hmm. and that influences how much money states get, but more importantly for redistricting, we have to redraw lines so that we sort of have equal populations for Congress, State House, State Senate, and the Public Education uh, Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, the legislature decided to create a citizen redistricting committee that would make recommendations to the legislature for the drawing of maps. And I think the reason they did that is the last two decades, uh, the courts had to draw the maps to the tune of like $6 million in expenses to the public. Mm -hmm. And so this is an effort, by a seven member cross-partisan committee to recommend three maps for Congress, the State House, the State Senate, and the Public Education Commission. Mm -hmm. Really big on public input. We had eight uh, meetings statewide. Uh, where we gathered public input, based on that public input, uh, research and polling with criteria submitted by the committee, uh, drew some maps, which we have now published on a, at our on our website nmredistricting.org. Under public uh, comments, go to draft plans and you'll see exactly uh, what we have out there for additional public input.
5: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, I'm going to highly recommend folks head over there. You'd be amazed how much is going on so far when it comes. Let me jump to you here real quick and Lily, uh, stand by for a quick sec. But Brian, the process, a lot of folks are are a little bit confused about the process, about how these maps came to be in the first place. There's a lot of criteria out there about certainly the number one issue is population. Could you please explain how that all works and and, and what that, how, how that affected you and your team and how to create these maps?
3: Sure. As the chairman said, every 10 years, the population changes. Although New Mexico didn't grow by that much this last decade, 2.9%, there was unequal growth. And so we saw on the west side, for example, super growth. uh, Some parts of the state, more rural areas, lost population. So you have to equalize the boundaries based on population shifts. Each district shall have substantially equal population, plus or minus a little leeway. Um, MAPS, uh, very important not to dilute the voting strength of ethnic or language minority groups to make sure that Native Americans, Hispanics, groups protected by the Voting Rights Act are in fact protected. Keep the districts compact to the extent that you can, take into account communities of interest. We listened around the state, uh, eight different groups came up with some concepts. Now, we're not saying that everyone's gonna like every concept, but we put them out there to encourage debate.
5: Interesting. Lily, you know, obviously your end of the deal is pretty important. You're the liaison for a number of groups out there who are looking to get their voices heard. Uh, tell us about, again, before we get to the details of who you're working with, tell us about your position and why it was important to have somebody on point, so to speak, for the rest of the state like this.
7: Yeah, so my role is to be the community liaison with the um, Citizen Redistricting Committee, mm-hmm. and, and it's important for multiple reasons. I think that people really care about whether or not um, our democratic systems are working and are working in their interest. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's um, mistrust about how healthy our democracy is functioning and in a particularly politically divisive environment Mm -hmm. that mistrust is heightened. And so And so sometimes people get really turned off, but when people understand and have folks who are willing to take the time to have conversations about why it's about how they can help influence more just and open and transparent outcomes, people inevitably rise to the occasion and they come with tremendous knowledge and wisdom of their community and a strong sense of what's fair and just. And we see that in the incredible amount of participation both virtually and in person, as well as people's follow-up in terms of making public comments and submitting maps. And so um, I get the great good pleasure of being able to have conversations with people to encourage them and walk them through some of the logistics Um, of the technology. So I'm not super techie. So if I can manage through, I really believe anybody can, I feel like I'm a dual language learner when it comes to tech. And so I'm pretty good at like breaking it down in really simple concrete ways for folks so they can navigate things.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Believe me. Um, Talk about specifically, Lily, if you would, um, Brian mentioned the Native American community. Certainly we've had a couple of you know, I don't want to use overuse a term high profile, it's not quite appropriate for this situation, but a couple of the tribes have weighed in officially um, with the chairman and, and all of you about what they would like to see. Talk about that if you would.
7: Well, I just want to say that it's been more than a few and even more coming in. Last night I received additional comments. So when things don't fit within our portal, um, people will directly communicate to me, and then I'll share that out with the CRC members and the team at Research and Polling and the team at the Ethics Commission. Mm-hmm. So so um, stay tuned because more and more maps and written narrative comments are coming forward regularly. And so, and I really just wanna give a shout out, like while I get the joy of working with good people who care about these issues, um, there have been a coalition of folks who have worked very diligently together mm-hmm. to build a coalition response to what needs to happen with redistricting and Casey Dumas and Keegan uh, have worked very hard on organizing people and working with official leadership, working with um, folks who are in the grassroots and everybody in between to come up with maps that people can stand behind together. The Navajo Human Rights Commission has done some incredible work on the Navajo Nation and local chapter houses have also been involved. Grassroots have also been involved. Um, the setter Group has worked with several Pueblos um, in New Mexico to you know, help them organize. So people are very much self-organizing mm-hmm. and I'm a resource person um, to them. So I wanna just give credit where it's due um, the the big heavy lifting is happening out in community on the ground with people coming together and really making sure that their needs and interests are represented and are communicated
5: mm-hmm. chairman Chavez I mean it again it sounds like a tremendous progress is being made are you are you happy personally with where we are currently in in this sort of a rollout or is there something more you're wanting to see what's what's your sense of it I'm, I'm curious where you're at
9: uh, HAPPY IS ONE WAY TO PUT IT. AMAZED IS ANOTHER WAY. Uh, HAVING RECEIVED CENSUS DATA ON AUGUST 12TH, AND THEN BRIAN uh, PUT THAT DATA TOGETHER, HAD TO THEN TRANSFER IT TO DISTRICTER, WHICH IS OUR uh, COMPANION WEBSITE WHERE PEOPLE CAN ACTUALLY DRAW MAPS, AND WE'VE GOTTEN A LOT OF INPUT. WE HAD OVER 1200 PARTICIPANTS DURING OUR FIRST ROUND OF MEETINGS, AND I EXPECT THAT THERE'S GOING TO BE A LOT MORE. NOW THAT THERE ARE CONCEPTS OUT THERE FOR THE PUBLIC TO LOOK AT AND COMMENT ON, you know, I tell them, don't wake up one morning and you find yourself uh, voting in uh, CD1 instead of CD2 or 3, right? So uh, it's important for you to stay up with this. And plus, we really want public input uh, with respect to these maps. And so we're going to start another round of eight meetings at 11 venues because we'll have three satellite venues. We'll start that next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first meeting will be in Rio Rancho. Second meeting, a very important meeting in Crown Point. Uh, and then then we go on until october 8th mm-hmm. after that we will then digest all of the input that we received from the public having looked at our maps and we will uh on october 15th decide exactly which maps we will adopt for recommendation to the legislature we have to recommend a minimum of three okay but i'm i'm telling you uh it could be more <laughs> hey it
5: seems like i let me go to brian on that i mean Obviously, the big news, you know, around these parks is, you know, CD one and how people sort of look at this. And I, I can't help but, you know, use my own experience to, years ago, of course, being in Congresswoman Wilson's office in CD1 as a staffer, and knowing the district as it stands now fairly well, there's always been a controversy, Brian, about where CD one should leave off, so to speak, <laughs> especially the southern end of it and where CD two should pick up. I'm curious where where you've been hearing you and your team, the conversation, particularly about CD1 and and where folks are either comfortable, uncomfortable. What's been your sense of that so far?
3: Well, first of all, different people have different perspectives Mm -hmm. and that's important to remember. So status quo is basically a Northern New Mexico district, an Albuquerque based district and a Southern based district. Mm -hmm. And we have three concepts that are very status quo oriented with uh, Bernalillo and Torrance County and uh, have those cores. We change on the edges to give people different choices. Mm
4: -hmm. But
3: many people spoke about other than status quo. So we came up with concepts based on what we heard about what about a more urban district, Albuquerque Rio Rancho? What about an Albuquerque Santa Fe? Um, What about, we heard a lot of people talk about the South Valley is more in common with uh, Boleyn and Vegeta and Anthony than it does with Tanawan. So, but some of those plans that people supported also split Albuquerque three ways and the North two ways. So we came up with one idea just for debate's sake. What about the South Valley, an incorporated part going down with the Southern District? And so all of those concepts are out there um, to spark debate. Controversy is not our goal, uh, but giving people different ideas, because not everybody wanted status quo, although we, we did hear a strong um, interest in maintaining a Hispano, Native American North, an Albuquerque base, and a Southern base. But mm-hmm. we gave people lots of other choices to consider. Mm-hmm.
5: Was Was there any particular feedback, uh, Brian, or pushback, whatever the term might be, about the idea of a CD1 sort of a, I'm being flipped here when I say super district, meaning You know Albuquerque and Rio Rancho and some surrounding areas and letting go parts of Torrance County that kind of a thing. Is any any concern about tipping the balance of power in the state when you've got a a district so urban and so large that way?
3: You can argue that. Yeah, that's the great thing. Some people say we should have an urban district. Some people said, "Does Tahajali and the East Mountains?" you know, belong in the first Congressional District, what about a pure urban district where the I East see. Mountains go into the Northern District, etc. So oh, we, we just did it to show uh, various alternatives for the public to consider.
5: Mm-hmm. One of the interesting bits or maps, I should say, is Congressional Concept D, which picks up a lot of the eastern part of the state, and in, 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 including that in CD2. And I mean, Eastern part of the state all the way up to the Northern border, just to, uh, to the Colorado border. That's a fascinating uh, idea. What, what was the idea behind, behind that? Who, who, what happens to that Eastern part of the state in New Mexico? Why are they better served being in, uh, part of CD2 in this scheme?
3: Some people feel the entire North should be in a congressional district as it currently is. Yeah. Some People think that one downside to that is you split the East side into two districts. So what if that if you kept Union and Harding counties and going down Quay mm-hmm. and Curry all in one district? So the benefit of it would be to unify eastern New Mexico into one district. The detractors would say, no, keep the entire north together because of the ranching farming interests are part of the northern culture.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These, are part of the, these are some of the sensitivities you have to be aware of,
3: don't you? I would, say, I would think putting a map together. And, and what we hear, you know, yeah. people come to these meetings and they're very sincere and they're viewing the maps from their worldview, from their perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so some people would say sincerely, keep the entire north together. Others would say, you know, the ranching interests belong more with the east side from top to bottom. Both valid points, depending on one's viewpoint. Right
5: hence the idea for the roadshows. I can, I can see the reasoning now. It's just, it's pretty simple. <laughs> I see you smiling, uh, Chairman. I mean, I, I you must be getting an earful from everybody's got their own ideas on this. And and it, it just, what, what gets me is every idea seems logical, like every one of them. I don't know how you decide which three you're gonna be able to
9: propose out of all these. Well, part of it is uh, relied on the public input because one of our responsibilities is to, index and summarize the public input we're building basically a record that supports uh, the the maps and i, I think that's key mm-hmm. uh, to this process but i also think that you know we have to keep not only communities of interest together but we have to deal with these other criteria like compactness and contiguity and and keeping uh, boundaries uh, the same you know political subdivisions or counties we we try to do all that and we have the good fortune of working with incredible experts at research and polling to, to help us uh, navigate uh, those various criteria.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Is there, Brian, you know, thinking ahead, I know we have another census, of course, 10 years from now, but does any of this encompass thinking ahead a little bit? Is, is there some trending proof you're trying to do as well? If you're seeing some trending happening in certain parts of the state, does that factor into it as well?
3: I think we try to deal with the current reality on the ground, but I mean, let's face it, we can anticipate that the west side and Rio Rancho will continue to grow, Right. The rural areas in the state will c- continue to decline. Some of our maps take that into account to try to uh, make sure that the rural voice is maintained, and, mm-hmm. and, and, but we can anticipate 10 years from now, given trends that... Um, the rural areas will continue to not keep pace with population growth, and the urban areas will exceed pop- average population growth. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, you know, that reminds me again one of the really issues in, in CD1 has been traditionally Rio Rancho. They, you know, sometimes they feel like they're being a little bit of an afterthought, you know, down the hill to the big urban center down the hill from them. How, yeah, how does one deal with Rio Rancho? I'm trying to find a better way to <laughs> say that. But if there are benefits going north or staying in the center of the state, certainly. I, I'm curious what Rio Rancho residents could gain by being part of CD three as well for representation. Because at that point, now you're suddenly at the far end of the district. You're not really sort of in the meat of it, so to speak. Any feedback in that regard?
3: Well, you know, if Rio Rancho is in CD three, it's the major metropolis in Santa Fe. And, and so it, it can wield yeah. more power politically, perhaps. If it's in with Albuquerque, then you have you know, one unified urban area. Um, and so I'm sure the people in Rio Rancho will have strong opinions one way or the other. Right, exactly and to
7: right. To piggyback Please. on what Brian was saying, in Las Vegas, the testimony from the community was really interesting in relationship to Rio Rancho. And people talked about, you know, hey, when our children grow up and they wanna stay in New Mexico, but they're looking for additional opportunities, Rio Rancho is really in our backyard. And so so culturally, traditionally population flow, a lot of rural Northern New Mexico ends up in Rio Rancho because it's not as small as where they're from, but Mm -hmm. obviously not as big as Albuquerque and and more affordable than perhaps Santa Fe, right? So so people, I mean, those relationships already exist. And I think that's some of the nuance that community is bringing in the analysis is to say, hey, Mm -hmm. what? what are our relationships and how are they playing out in how we use our built environment and our geography? And what does that mean in terms of political representation? That's a good
5: point. That's a good point. It's easy to sit here in Albuquerque and think about these things for others. That's interesting to hear that point of view from Las Vegas about Rio Rancho. That's kind of fascinating. By the way, for the folks watching, uh, I I was remiss in not giving the website, of course, it's nmredistricting.org nmredistricting.org you can see it all there there are ways to get in touch with these folks to have your voice heard in many many different ways I have to congratulate you Lily uh, you're very accessible phone numbers email I mean <laughs> this, you're not hiding from anybody here I can see there's lots of ways to get at you that's for sure uh, Lily we've also had uh, one of the tribes talk about preferences in some of the house races as well and so I'm curious how you're, you're sort of figuring all that in you know the tribes have, want to have a say certainly, and have a say certainly in the bigger maps, but then they, the House and Senate maps for our local stuff is, is important for them as well. If you could speak to
7: that. Yeah. So again, to what Chairman Chavez was saying, um, historically we've had some significant challenges in this country when it comes to Native American voting rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even the right to vote—it's um, been less than a hundred years. Um, So I think it's important to keep in mind what's at stake for people. And and so, you know, we have districts that are currently drawn Mm -hmm. that are based on lawsuits from from credible um, claims around voting rights act violations. Mm -hmm. That is real. That's not just distant history that is current history. It is present density you would need in order for folks to have a chance Mm. to to elect somebody who is truly representative. And so, of course, that's gonna play out in our House and Senate districts as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Gina, I'd like to add one thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not as uh, simple or as easy as it appears. Oftentimes organizations submit regional maps. Um, And then we have a challenge of trying to fit that regional map into statewide maps. And sometimes they don't mesh well. Other times, different organizations that have similar interests will present regional maps with very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily line up even with each other. So there's a challenge there of integrating regional maps. Anybody could draw a perfect district for their neighborhood or their city, but integrating it into a state mind map, uh, you, you, there are sometimes winners and losers, and there are sometimes compromises that have to be made that people have to recognize. You can't draw the perfect map you cannot keep everybody happy. You know, well, that. that go, go ahead, Lily,
5: my fault.
7: So I was just gonna say one of the beautiful questions that Member Curtis has consistently asked folks to do and, and others as well, uh, but she started the drumbeat was to, to encourage folks to, you know, as you're submitting maps, if you submit a regional map or even a more localized map than that, to think about what the implications are for our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, this is a dynamic system, and so what happens in one area of the state has impacts on the other areas of the state. And so we've seen some very thoughtful analysis, and even in people's written narrative, I'm thinking of the New Mexico Ezequiel Association, for example, who noted the complexity of drawing these maps. And Mm -hmm. so while it's very accessible in terms of technology, as Brian was saying, the trade-offs are real. Um, There are competing interests. And thank goodness that there is codified criteria and as well as legal criteria to help guide um, the decision-making that um, the CRC is going to need to make.
5: Mm-hmm. You know, it really comes through when you look at the concept maps for the house seats and uh, Senate seats as well. What Brian was saying a second ago, Ooh, man, I mean, each bullet point is all kinds of <laughs> compromises under each map. I mean, is you know, For folks who may not be aware, we're talking about what do you do with splitting perhaps the west side? What do you do with Edgewood? What do you do? You know, there's lots of different ways locally, I'm talking here, uh, to kind of cut at this. And I would very much, again, encourage folks to go to nmredistricting.org. I mean, I very much encourage. If you want to get in on this, you've got some time. As Chairman Chavez had said, there's going to be a roadshow pretty vigorous uh, right up through October 15th when that deadline's coming. So it's not as if this is, you know, chipped in stone here. There's ways to get your voices heard. And and, um, Chairman, I want to finish with you here as well and just go back to what you were mentioning for the Roadshow and uh, really get folks kind of participate. Let's get as many voices as we can here in this, this last bit so we don't make sure we don't leave anybody behind here. Again, what's the best way you can recommend for folks to participate? Is it really to be live in person or Zooming? with these uh, upcoming events? Is it just keeping track on the website? What's your recommendation to folks? Uh,
9: My recommendation is that they remember that every meeting is for every New Mexican. I don't care if you are in the northeastern part of the state and we're down in the southeastern part of the state Mm -hmm. uh, talking to people in, in a public meeting. If that's the only day you can participate, show up at that meeting or zoom in and comment about the district that affects you. Uh, so every meeting is for every new mexican Uh, zoom is a great way to uh, be active Mm -hmm. because we do hear from everybody i don't have time limits on people although i ask them to respect the fact that many people do want to comment and so zoom is the second most effective i think and then the third is the website using that website to draw maps and actually show us what you would like to see with the maps or show us what you think is wrong you can take one of our concept maps go into Districtor, and you can modify it it will save the original but it will show us exactly how you the public would prefer to see that map drawn Mm -hmm.
5: that's pretty huge i mean that's no small thing when you think about manipulating software and stuff we've come a long way this used to be the parlance of Sophisticated people with sophisticated skills. It's just not that way anymore with Redistrictor. And Lily, thank you very much for your notes about the portal to be able to uh, participate as well. We see you there in the chat, adding that in. So we'll get that up as well. Uh, Lily and Brian Sanderoff and Chairman Chavez, thank you all so much. I know you guys are super busy right now. And Chairman, thank you for hustling home to do this. I really appreciate it. Uh, Sure. Perhaps we can catch up with you uh, just after the 15th next month. After this all sort of shakes out, we'd love to kind of get the viewers a little more uh, up to speed on what the final results are. But again, the more important part is there's plenty of time to participate. This is not experts doing it, and you just don't have a say. The public very much has a say here. So nmredistricting.org, I very much encourage you to check it out. And I will say as well, uh, the chairman knows this, whenever we have the opportunity to stream one of the meetings, on our New Mexico In Focus uh, Facebook page, we will do so. All uh, right. We may not be able to get out to Crown Point, but we, we can do something a little bit closer to the urban center because we know we, we'd like to do that for you, Chairman. That's for sure. So Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. It's a, it's a public service. This is important stuff to know. Uh, Brian Lilly, again, thank you guys very much. Really appreciate your Thanks, time Gene. on this. Thanks, and We're Gene. going to talk about this a little bit more on Friday night on New Mexico In Focus at 7 o'clock on Channel 5.1, and we'll see you there. Thanks, guys. Have a great Bye-bye. day. bye
8: Bye.
0: Bye. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. encourage you to leave us a review, like, tell us what you think about the program. All of those things help us to shape the program each week and send in those suggestions for other topics we should be covering as well. We always appreciate that. want to thank the entire New Mexico in Focus team. I am executive producer Kevin McDonald. Have a terrific week, and we will talk to you again next time. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, stay healthy.